Let's pray and I'll start. Father, thank you. Thank you that we can worship and gather together in your house. Again, I would ask that you would uh, take Scott and really give him a time of joy and relaxation. Diana, again, is there a way? But uh, take this body and flock this day and open their hearts to the story of long ago that speaks to us now. Amen. You know, I'd like to ask you something, and it's really this. There are things I bet that when you do them, little components of your day, that when you do them, you know that day is just going to work out a little bit better. There are things like, oh, if you hit the snooze only once instead of ten times, that might, that might have an influence on the rest of your day. Um, making sure maybe you, sit, you forgot to set the automatic and you come down the cup is, on the coffee maker is ready or not. If it's ready, maybe that helps. Some of you probably hit the gym and get a workout in in the morning. I have a feeling that there are things in our lives and there are, some of them are shared and some of them are unique to us that when we incorporate them into our lives, that day just seems... To work a little better. At least, even if it isn't a great day, we can meet it somewhat differently. Does that sound like something you might agree with? We're going to look at a story today that took place a long time ago. And I'm not going to tell you where it is as I walk through it, but see if you can determine what Abram did. We're going to see that really there was something he didn't do. Oh, boy, and he had a bad day. And then when he did do it, hmm. And I think that lesson, that incorporation of what Abram did can be something very valuable, very valuable to each of us. Now, again, we're looking at Genesis 13. I think we're going to have most of this up on the screens for you in the NIV. And this is dealing with Abram. We know that he becomes Abraham in a short period, but he hasn't taken on the new name yet. And let's just talk a little bit about the characters here before we read the passage. The two main characters here are Abram and his nephew Lot. Lot's father has mysteriously died, and so Abram, the patriarch of that family, takes him on under his wing, so to speak, and he's with Abram. And Abram has just received, as you know, this amazing, and it is, flat-out amazing call by this mysterious God to just drop and leave everything, my man, and go. I'll tell you when... You get there. You'll know it when I tell you. I mean, think about what he left and what he's... But Lot is going with him. He clearly has his family. And they set off. Now, later on in Genesis, we find in 14 that there's an episode in which Abram needs to rescue Lot. And in that episode, he takes 318 fighting men with him. Why might that be helpful here? Well... I'm not an expert on uh, family history, but it would seem to me if you have a group of 318 fighting men, 
you probably have a group five to seven or eight times that large in total. It would, as I think about birth rates and things going on and family extensions and things, if I've got one out of five, six, seven guys that are of fighting capacity, I think I'm going to guess that there's 1,500 at minimum to 2,000 perhaps more people in this group. So it's a notable group. It's a sizable group. It's not crazy huge as compared to we think of some of the other stories in the Bible and some of the vast armies that have engaged. But I think it's likely there might have been 1,500 to 2,000 people. And the number of animals would certainly have been greater than that to sustain them. Remember, they're not walking around and pulling a cooler and they don't have a pantry and a fridge. They're eating off the land and they're eating of the herds that they're bringing with them. And where are they? Well, Abram was really walked a long way. We believe that he came up, well, near the city of Ur in the Euphrates Valley and he, he walked up to the north and west, and then across to Canaan. I looked on a map. We're looking at uh, 650 or so miles. Now, if I'm walking along with, let's say, 2,000 people with children and 5, 10, 12,000 animals, I don't know if I'm going to make even 10 miles a day. So I think it's easy to assume that he's been on the road, so to speak, for perhaps three months. This has been a long journey. And we find that he stops a number of times. In chapter 12, he stops and builds an altar. Uh, There's another stop slightly south of that. And then his third stop in Egypt. And then he comes back out of Egypt to getting back up to Canaan. And it's there I want to begin reading. So I'm in chapter 13 of Genesis. And I think I gave you Thomas 1 to 9. I may read 1 to 11. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had, and Lot went with them. Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. From the Negev, he went from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and I where his tent had been earlier and where he had first built an altar. There Abram called on the name of the Lord. Now Lot, who was moving about with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. But the land could not support them while they stayed together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. And quarreling arose between Abram's herdsmen and the herdsmen of Lot. The Canaanites and the Perizzites were also living in the land at that time. So Abram said to Lot, let's not have any quarreling between you and me or between your herdsmen and mine, for we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you. Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Lot looked up and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan was well watered like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt toward Zoar. And in 11, so Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out toward the east. The two men parted company. Let's really take a look at the level of conflict that was taking place here. 
I'm, uh, I grew up at a time when almost every show on TV at night was a Western. I'm looking out at you. I think you probably experienced much of the same thing. You couldn't turn it on without finding the Virginian or Rawhide or Gunsmoke or Wagon Train, okay? If you look back in that time and slightly before the settling of the West, we know that there were range wars. What was a range war? Well, it was a fight between people that wanted the grazing and water rights to an area. And why is that important? Well, if I can't sustain my herd, my family is in peril. And we know that there were violent confrontations initially between different herds of cattle coming in different areas and then after the Homestead Act and slightly before that, we know that as, as the government allocated lots of land to people to go out and put down and create a farm, that really created confrontation between the ranchers and the farmers. And people died. I really think we've got to understand the level of conflict that was taking place here. Thousands of animals. Clearly there were this... And again, mysterious God was taking their leader, Abram. They're on the right place, but as nice as this seems to be, this area just can't seem to sustain the herds. And I think there were some pushing and fighting and name-calling and perhaps some clubs. I don't know if arrows were drawn or not. That would have been one of the weapons clearly at the time. But I don't think we should do anything other than recognize this was really a difficult time. And the anger arose within these people so that Abram finally recognized it and said, hey, something's got to be done. And so he calls Lot in. And then we have this rather amazing example of conflict resolution. Because Abram says, well, you know, let's not have any quarreling between you and me or between your herdsmen. I mean, it's a very gracious thing um, like man, magnanimous gesture that he makes here. He didn't have to do that, did he? I mean, think about this. He is the guy, he's the leader, he's the patriarch of this group, he's the one who's been called by God to find this other place. And he could have easily said, Lot, this isn't working out, go with my blessing." God has told me to be here. I think if he had done that, I don't think anybody would have thought a second thing of it. He's clearly the older man. It would have been within his rights to assert himself that way. I think it would have been absolutely fine in one sense if he had. But he does this amazing gracious offer, gives a gracious offer to Lot. And Lot looks around and says, well, what do you think he said? you know what I think he might have said? The old man must be nuts. I mean, please, why wouldn't I go here? If I don't, I don't know if my goats and sheep are going to stay alive. And I, I talked to Reuben the other day. His kids are hungry right now. I mean, I have a feeling he might have thought that. And if he didn't, I think some of the people in the group could have thought that, like, 
wait a minute, they're talking, I hear Abram and Lot are talking, I can't believe, I mean, he's going to give up the good land? I have no doubt that people in both camps might have thought that. There might have been this response. Wow. I don't know if I could have done that. But this God has taken us this far. That's an amazing act of faith. I hope we make it. But I'm going to trust him. I think both responses could have easily found themselves expressed within these people. And so we have this offer, and Lot looks around, and I mean, really, I'm sure he thought, why wouldn't I? (laughs) And he takes the best land and water, which, of course, is where people have already settled, and you probably know Sodom and Gomorrah, the cities there in the plains and where he went and what happened later in his life. And Abram is left to some scrubby, hilly country with less water. You know, we can look at this and we can say, well, Tom, come on. Abram was called by God. He's clearly a leader. He's the patriarch of these people. This is in his character. This is what I would have done. This is what any great man would have done in this situation. You know, trusted God and let the nephew go and believe that God's going to take me to a more difficult way and place but sustain me. Maybe, you know, actually that's not a bad perspective but you realize how incredibly contrasting that character here faces his lack of character in the story previously whoa i mean we can look at this and say well i yeah abram was leader i i can see why he would have done that and he knew about the promise of god i mean i difficult but Boy, we've got to go back and we've got to make sure and really contrast what just happened and then what seems to have happened in between. Because I want you to take you back here. Look at the beginning of 13. It says, Abram went back from Egypt to the Negev, okay, with his wife, everything he had, and he'd become wealthy. And then three, from the Negev, he went from place to place. Remember, God is leading him. I'll show you. You'll know it when you get there. But then this is, just don't miss this. And he came to Bethel, the place between Bethel and I, where his tent had been earlier and where he had first built an altar. Abram, I thought you were called by God and you're on a journey and you're just on a one-way mission to go where God wants you to be. Why are you going back to some place you've been before? Why is he going back to a place he's been before? Well, let's talk about that. Because I think when we understand that and what he did in the meantime, it might give you and I a little motivation to think about something that should be in our life and day, daily, so that we can meet the gift of every day differently with God's wisdom, with his grace. Well, what happened? We know that as he took off from Ur and made his journey over towards Canaan, he stopped a couple times. There are altars being made. But at, in the middle of chapter 12, it says, 
Now, there was a famine in the land. And those of you who are biblically astute, maybe thinking back, even if you're not, you, you remember back as kids the famine and the journey to Egypt later. That's a very similar situation taking place here. And there's a famine, and Abram looks around and he goes down to Egypt because that was the nation that had the storehouses and the resources to feed him. And that seems like a pretty good move. I mean, why wouldn't you go down there? Okay, he's going to help his family survive. He's got a lot of people he's watching out for. Except one. Yeah. He happens to be married to, and I guess I'm going to insert here, a stunning woman. Sarai's name hasn't been changed to Sarah yet, but it seems though she's described physically as someone who was Whoa. Okay? That's fine. But Abram realizes, when I crash into Egypt, there's a pharaoh here that has a group of stunning women. And let's just say they don't tie his sandals and feed him grapes. Do you know what I mean? That's what they're, they are there for the pharaoh. And Abram, oh, this grieves me. He forgets what God has said and says, oh, you are so sharp. Man, I like that, what you've got on today, honey. But you know what? You are, you're, you're clearly the most beautiful woman in this area. When the Pharaoh's people see that, they're going to want you. And if I'm the husband in the way... Hmm, that's not good. Let's see. Um, let's brainstorm on this, honey. Let's see. What could we do here to uh, save my skin? And he comes up with a plan. Genius! Whoa, this is a great idea. I'm going to lie and tell everybody I'm your brother. They're never going to kill the brother. If I was a husband, yeah, this wouldn't be so good. But the brother, they'll let me be. And it's interesting because we get nothing of Sarai's dialogue here. It's just she seems passive and compliant. I know it was a different culture back then. I have a feeling she probably wasn't extremely excited about this arrangement. But nonetheless, it's the arrangement he invests in. And he gives her to Pharaoh. And then again, she's part of his harem. One of the wonderful initiatives we've been, and a number of churches have been taking on the last few years is getting women out of the slave trade, the sex slave trade. And the Compass Church has been very involved in that in the last few years. We actually have a store there called Justice Market where products and trinkets and robes and, and purses and all kinds of things made by women who've come out of the trade are, on, are for sale. And the funds go back to rehabilitate them and help them. This is a disgusting thing that he did. When we understand the reality of the slave trade today. And it was all to save his skin. A man who was given a promise by God. How could you do that? 
Well, God steps in. How does he step in? Well, the story tells us that calamity began to occur. And the Egyptians begin to experience some bad things. And I think the implication here is I believe somehow Pharaoh saw cause and effect and I even wonder if God somehow opened because he had hardened, we know that he hardened some of the Pharaoh's hearts, but here Pharaoh approaches Abram and says, what are you doing? That's your wife, that's not your sister. Do you realize the peril you put me in and my nation? Wow. Now, Recognize how amazing this conversation is. It should have been 180 degrees different. should have been Abram saying, do you understand there's a God of the universe? Do you understand that he's not made of brick and stone or gold? He is the mouthpiece of God. Oh, not here. Not here. And Pharaoh is so mad, he's so frustrated, he's so disgusted, he says, get out of here. And he gives him more stuff to help him on his way. I, have, I, I don't know. What do you think Sarai's first words to Abram were? And so he leaves. And he takes off. And it's 250 miles from the edge of Egypt up to where it tells us he stopped. And that's what I want to take you back to. Because it says that he went to a place he'd been before. Do you think he was convicted and felt shame? I do. Do you think he felt horrible at what he'd done to his wife? Do you think he felt badly about what he'd done to misrepresent God? I think he was a shell of a broken, guilt-ridden man as he walked north out of Egypt. Why would he go 250 miles before he had his quiet time? Why not just stop one foot outside of Egypt and go, Lord, he, is God not capable? Was God not there? He could have stopped at any point along the way from Egypt to Canaan, but instead he goes 250 miles at what? Eight, ten miles a day? This is a journey. And then he goes back to the place he'd worshipped God before. And this is what I believe happened. I don't believe for a second that God insisted that he go there for God's sake. But I believe Abram felt that he had to go for his own. Why? Because that was the last place he was right with God. That was where he had last given praise and worship. That's the last place he'd offered sacrifice. That was where he just sensed the presence and knew God was there. And he'd walked away, literally, walked away from God for, I don't know, a month, two? 
And he could have stopped anywhere along those 250 miles back to Canaan, but he went back to the place he'd worshipped before because he said, oh, God Almighty, I've got to go back where you and I last met. And have you touched my heart again? I have sinned. And I think this amazing grace that we just sang about enveloped him. And he sensed total forgiveness and joy and strength and humility and a reclamation to the promise God had given him. That's what I believe happened here. That's why I think he went back. And from that, God positions again and reaffirms the promise he's given him. And out of that clarity and peace of mind, I believe then he's able to enter into a high conflict situation and respond with grace and wisdom. And it's amazing. Now, that's not the only reaction we seem to get here. This is very interesting. Abram asked Lot where he wants to go. And in verse 10, it says, Lot looked up and saw the whole plain. And I've told you, remember, this is like, this is the best land. Lot does a very wise thing. It's a very practical thing. He says, I have to sustain my flocks and keep my family alive. If he's given me the choice, I'm going to the best land. I mean, we'd probably call him an idiot if he didn't. But contrast that to what Abram seems to see. In verse 14, it says, The Lord said to Abram after Lot had parted from him, Lift up your eyes from where you are and look. Abram saw land. He saw the same land, but he saw a promise of God. And I think that's a very important thing to consider as we think about where we are. What's the lesson for us? I know that you have a cup of coffee, perhaps a workout, maybe a walk in the morning. I'm sure you have a number of things that take place in your day to set you up to try to make it a good day. Are you spending time with the Lord? This is an amazing example of a man who makes a calamitous error. And I know nobody in here probably saying, well, good grief, I didn't let my wife go to a sex, sex trade. Uh, I, thank God. But I look at this and I see his desire to go back to a place he'd been before. Why? To reassert again an experience that he had had, a place that he had had that had marked him. To reassert again his path of faithful walking for and with God. And I think that's something we should consider for ourselves today. Now, if you want to, I'm not saying you have to, make a, put a pile of stones in your backyard. But I really think you should have a place. You should have a place where when you go to it, you know you're just going to talk to God and listen to what he says. We happen to be blessed in our house with a walk-in closet. That's one of my places. 
I have a spot right by the bed where I kneel. That's another place. What are yours? I have a feeling for some of you it's been too long. And I want to tell you right now, you're not going to walk into that place with any more sin and shame on your heart than Abram did. So don't be telling me, God will never expect me. I can't, oh, I can't face that. Please, he's a loving God. He's saying, come on, come on, this is your spot. Let's go. And for some of you, I want to commend you for maintaining a discipline. Now, I am not in any way saying you are earning God's love, you are earning salvation by having a time of devotions and worship with you and God. I'm not saying that. I'm saying it's part of our lives. It's a response in this place where we are, and it's all about Jesus, what Jesus has done for us to give us that opportunity to commune with the Father, to look at the Word, and to pray and be in concert with Him. It's not earning salvation. It's an expression, a reflection of that relationship. Jesus has won for us. That's an amazing thing to see a man, a leader like that, go back and humble himself before God and then experience grace anew. And if you read through Abram's story, you'll see that the making of altars is very important in his story. I hope this has done something to motivate and encourage you to spend time with him. You can do it this afternoon after church if you want. Or tonight. But I hope that you'll begin to incorporate it on a more regular way, in a more regular way into your lives. And I can assure you, when you do so, you're going to meet the difficulties in life because I'm sure some of you are sick. You know people that are sick. You're, the finances are an issue. There's other things. We all have stuff going on. I know that I can meet those things better when I just am with him. And I hope Abram's story will speak to you today and encourage you to do that as well.